life-changing, life-altering realities that uh, make what could be an ordinary, mundane, and routine Wednesday night make it uh, a special, unique night. I pray in these next few minutes as your people, uh, the people at Crosspoint, gather that we'll um, recognize that ground, that um, holiness, that moment, this um, importance of considering even a story that we've heard probably since childhood and that we can approach it anew and that we can walk away with deep, deep truths that change today and tomorrow. Thank you so much for this rich word that just keeps speaking. Thank you that we can engage a story that we've heard all our lives and yet it keeps delivering and keeps ministering and keeps changing and altering. And um, I just pray that you'll find us worshipers that just continue to engage it and enjoy it. In these next few minutes, we turn them over to you and just ask you uh, to be glorified in, in your people and um, pray that you'll be enjoyed. Lord, I also want to pray for Christy Cardwell and her family and uh, just the loss of her granddaddy. I uh, just pray that you'll just bless that family right now and trusting that her granddaddy is asleep in you and um, that uh, she, given the hope in Christ, the shared hope in Christ that she shared with her granddaddy, that she will see him again in glory and uh, just pray that his family will enjoy sweet memories right now and enjoy a life well lived uh, we love you so much lord we look forward to this time together in christ's name we pray amen all right how many of y'all have a household okay i want to kind of see uh just a sense in here we got one two three four five do you live it by yourself mindy Family, you live with family, okay? We'll count you as a household. Um, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. We'll count you a household, Patrick. Fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Eighteen households represented tonight. And uh, as we're climbing into this story of Noah and the flood, I want you to think in terms of household, um, especially where I'm about to begin in chapter seven. Um, for the sake of time, I'm hoping that tonight that we can look at chapters 7 and 8 and finish up chapters 7 and 8 and climb into chapter 9 after the holidays. But I'm going to pick up in chapter 7 and just pay attention to even the first verse. I want you to notice and think about why I've asked that question of how many households are represented here, how many of you are responsible for households. And listen to this first verse of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark. You and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Just for the sake of context, just to kind of bring us up to where we are, they may seem obvious, but they're worth engaging and considering. In chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this creation is in bad shape. There's wickedness on the earth. And in fact, the wickedness is so bad, the corruption is so significant that all flesh is corrupt, not just human flesh. In fact, even critter flesh is corrupt. And that's why even the animals and creatures will be drowned in the flood. But look back at chapter 5, verse 29. They called this man's name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, this Noah, shall bring us relief from our work. And from the painful toil of our hands, Noah is going to be a type of Christ. This story that we've heard our whole lives, that it's only been in the last couple of years that I've begun to read these stories looking for Jesus in them, and you realize that for the Jew, when Jesus showed up, it had been, should have been, well, no, duh, there he is. 
Well, no doubt when you look at the cross, well, there's an ark. They should have recognized Christ, but they didn't. But for us now, with the hindsight of another 2,000 years of the, the full Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit now that we can look back and we can see this story has been typed out over the ages where he's shown little glimpses of the gospel before Christ ever even showed up, at least uh, in the flesh. This picture that we're climbing into in chapter 7 begins with, you and all your household, I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now let me, let me address the issue of household first. The reason I wanted to bring out this picture of household and ask, we probably have 19, 20, 21 households represented in this room right now. At Crosspoint, in members, just in members, we have about 89 households represented. And I'm beginning to view this people now in terms of households because it's such an important redemptive pattern. Keep your finger in Genesis chapter 7 and look over at John chapter 4. The reason this is so foreign to us is because we're so Western, and I don't mean cowboy Western, I mean United States North America, Western, our Western minds think so individually, we have a tough time thinking in terms of family and in terms of integrity of a, a family unit and a household. Look at John chapter 4, verse 53. Just give you a little context. This official comes to Jesus asking for healing of his son. His son is healed, and in 53 of that chapter, it says, The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. That's not the only picture of that. There's a number of pictures in Acts. Let's just flip over to Acts and let's look at just three of them. Acts chapter 6, since we're kind of over here in this same area. I want to show this to you because this is so, so important. And it may explain to you why the character of Crosspoint's ministry in the last year and a half or so has taken a very intentional turn toward shepherds and heads of households and engaging families and household units. Look at chapter 6 of Acts, chapter, uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 14, actually. Um, I'll look back a verse. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law, for we've heard him say, is this where I want to be? Acts chapter 6, verse 14. No, I, I have a mistake here. Maybe it's Acts 16. I know there's one I'm looking at at 16. So let's go ahead and go there and see if I made a mistake there. Yeah, it's in the same chapter. <laughs> Sorry about that. Look at verse 14 of chapter 16. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, look in the same chapter, verse 31. Here's another example of that picture. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that had believed in God. Just look over a couple chapters at Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire 
household. There seems to be this emphasis on family units and households. And the reason I bring that out is because I want men especially. I know there are unique cases, and in our body we have a number of single moms. So when I say men, single parents, or excuse me, single moms, are functionally single moms, I kind of want you to hear yourself if you're a spiritually single mom, meaning that daddy is not spiritually engaged. He may not even be a believer, and we have some moms that are in that case. But especially I'm speaking to shepherds, and in most cases I'm speaking to fathers. You've got to realize that you are in the ministry. And the problem is a number of young men are getting married these days and getting engaged and then going to get married not realizing that they're going into the ministry. And that they're going to be responsible for a household. A little, a little micro gospel is supposed to unfold in a little micro earth called family and household. Or you're going to be a little micro shepherd to that micro flock. And men have got to take some ownership of that and realize that the Lord seems to be redeeming people in many ways by family units. It's important to realize that. I want shepherds to see ourselves in Noah, leading our families onto an ark. I want us to see ourselves in the Father at Passover, grabbing the hyssop branch and slathering it up with the blood of the Passover lamb and then slathering up the doorposts and the lentils, making ready for midnight when the destroyer is coming. Because the fathers and the shepherds are, in, in some cases, those singles moms must see ourselves as responsible and is in the ministry preparing our families for those times. God seems to pay attention to family units. It matters to Him. Now, on the flip side, yet He still seems to look at individuals. Okay? Otherwise, we could just expect that if a father is a believer, that his whole family is going to be saved automatically. There still seems to be some individual responsibility. Look at Ezekiel. Keep your finger in Genesis chapter 7. I want you to see these couple of pictures in Ezekiel. 14.20 is the first one. I'll see if I can get you some page numbers once I get there. Uh, page 701 of your pew Bible. Ezekiel 14.20, I'll start in verse 19. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut it off or cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. What that's pointing to is a picture of deliverance. And basically he's saying, hey, even if Noah is in that land, I'm not going to deliver that people. So there's not like this corporate um, righteousness that is automatic. There still seems to be an individual treatment where he's saying there must be some individual righteousness as well. The beauty is that if daddy is pursuing righteousness, if daddy's walking with the Lord, there will be spillover onto the family. And that's why I think we're seeing so many pictures of households being saved and households being baptized. But yet there's still individual responsibility. Here's another picture of that in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. 
Now, that's the emphasis that I've heard my whole life, in the large part, through the preaching and teaching of the Word in the Southern Baptist denomination. It's about you. Unleash your hands from the pew back and walk the aisle because what happens if you get hit, hit by a car tonight? This is about you, individual. There is an individual responsibility, but there's also a family responsibility where daddies is God. Daddies have to man up and lead out and lead that family to ready for midnight deliverance and lead out to ready that family for the seventh day when it starts raining and when that flood's coming. Ultimately, what I'm, what I'm talking about is likening that to death or likening it to Christ's return because they're coming. It's the next event in redemptive history is Christ's return. So the shepherds should be making ready their family. I'm not afraid to emphasize that. And I think in this case, as we consider Shem, um, Ham, and Japheth, Japheth, Noah's boys, while in some ways they were benefactors of Noah's righteousness and God's covenant with Noah, they had to have some inherent righteousness of their own. There had to be some faithfulness in them as well, or they wouldn't have benefited from this. And if you think about it, Noah didn't build that ark by himself. And I don't think Mrs. Noah was out there with her glue gun and scotch tape helping her. I think it was three boys breaking their backs, breaking their knees, out there with hammer and nails and saws, building that ark for a hundred-something years. Probably with the jeers and the heckles of all humanity at that time laughing at them. What is that contraption? Oh, it's going to rain. Well, what is that? It probably hadn't even rained at that point. They were living in a big greenhouse. Who needs a boat? So I think there's some inherent righteousness in those guys that um, uh, some, some individual inherent righteousness or God reckoned righteous. Okay, let's look at verse 2. We're going to move faster as we move through the rest of this, but I want to stop down on that first verse. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. We're back at, at Genesis chapter 12. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. I want you to recognize and notice that God decides which animals are clean and which are not. You know, we know that Noah walked with God, so they must have had some sort of relationship there. It doesn't tell us right here how Noah knew which animals were clean and which weren't, but apparently Noah had some information that we don't see right here. God let him know which animals were clean and which were not, and God decides which animals are clean or not, and it's something that really he ought to be able to do as what? What gives him the right? He's a creator. That's right, and it's the same right that gives him the ability to decide which vessels will be for common use and which vessels will be for honorable use. How can he get away with that? Well, he's God. And it's the same God that can get away with deciding which vessels are vessels of wrath and which vessels are vessels of mercy. I know that's a tough teaching for a lot of people, but here's the precedence for it. Here's the tone. He can do that because he's a creator. He can do that righteously. He has them consider these, or especially bring these seven pairs of clean animals. And I want you to consider that in bringing these seven pairs of clean animals onto the ark, these are the critters, the very same critters, not that animal necessarily, but their line will be the lines that thousands of years later, maybe, I don't know the period of time between the flood 
and the um, beginning of the sacrificial system. But these are the critters that are going to be offered at the tabernacle and the temple for worship. That in some awesome way, God is actually designing a plan to where the people of God will continue to be able to atone for their sin. Man, it's, just, it's the picture of provision within provision. He's providing not only for this little Noah remnant family that's climbing on the ark to survive, but also for the chosen people to come to survive before a holy God. If there weren't any clean animals that could be offered for sacrifice, and it was just a bunch of dirty, nasty animals considered unclean that were not righteous for sacrifice, the people of God would be left empty-handed for that 1,500 years of the sacrificial system. The 1,500 years, that's the tutor that leads us to Christ, that prepares us to recognize Christ as that final one-time sacrifice as the unblemished lamb. You see, his provision within provision. Go get seven pairs of clean animals and put them on the ark too because it's their grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grand, I guess they'd be kids if they're goats and sheep and lambs, grand lambs that will be sacrificed in the temple and the tabernacle someday. What a gracious God, a way-making God. Look in verse 4. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. God gave them a seven-day warning. You know, you ever stand at the... um, are you seeing the, you may have seen the show where somebody's standing at the train station and all aboard, you know, you got 15 minutes or so before everybody climbs on board. They got a seven-day notice. All aboard, you got seven days to get these critters on the boat. And if you think about how long it takes, if you've ever been on a cruise or something, you don't have to show up seven days earlier. You can put a lot of people on a boat in a period of a couple of hours, a boarding period. So we're talking about seven days that he's loading critters on this boat. Seven-day notice, and the beauty is that he led these animals there and that Noah and his family loaded them, and then Noah and his family were the last ones to board. They boarded on the day that it began to rain. I was just thinking about what that must have been like as they climbed the gangplank. I think that's what it's called. When I was in the Marine Corps, I spent a little bit of time on Navy ships, just enough to know that I was glad I wasn't in the Navy. But I think it's called the gangplank, where you come on and off and where you board. But I was thinking about what it would be like as they're walking up the gangplank of this ship that they built. They spent 100 years, probably at least, building this ship. And it's like all these critters, you know, just imagine they've had seven days to load these animals. It's like clowns in a VW Bug. You know, how many clowns can we put in a VW Bug? Imagine, they're probably thinking, how did we get all these critters on this ark? They've loaded all these animals, and then as they're walking up the gangplank, you know whenever sometimes you're about to get a toad drowner that's coming, and it starts out where the the sky gets real dark, and those first drops are about that big, and they're cold? You're like, whoa, man, those things, they and like one drop, you're soaking wet. I'm just imagining these guys walking up the gangplank, 
feeling those big fat ones hitting their head, maybe for the first time that humanity has ever experienced rain. And it's getting darker and darker. And I wonder what the people were thinking as those big drops fell. I wonder what Noah and his family were thinking, but I bet they were whispering as they were battening down the hatches, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the instructions. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to obey. Thank you for working in us obedience so that we built your ark to preserve a remnant of your people. Thank you, God. Batten down the hatches. And then they hear it coming down. You've heard of heavy rain before. What important thing do you see in God's character in this passage that I just read, verses 4 through 10? Don't you pay attention to it. I want you to see this. I'm not going to help you with it. What important thing do you see in God's character and how he relates to Noah? The word is used twice in that section. Okay, look at, look at a specific word I'm looking for. It's used twice. No, it's how God interacts with Noah. Commanded. Something that you can learn from God about God in this story is that God is a commanding sort of God, and he can do that again. Why? Because he's a creator. That's right. His godness makes him able to do that. The, the, the human that doesn't like a commanding sort of God is a rebellious human that is going to be against God forever. We've got to embrace that he is a commanding sort of God, and we've got to consider how Noah responds. What important thing do you see in Noah here? He's, a, he's an obedient um, man, isn't he? Man, it says right there. Um, what, what did it say? It said, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. The guy that walks with God obeys. He's not on his own program. He's not on the freestyle program. In the Marine Corps, we had this thing that, that I like to call selective obedience to orders. The reason I called it that is because I was so good at it. My company commander, if he gave me some orders and I, didn't, I wasn't really fond of all of them, I would kind of pick and choose the ones I liked. <laughs> you know, Captain, I've, I've got this figured out. You know, I, I, I've, I think I've got something on you. I can, I can handle this. And that's rebellion, and that's disobedience. There's no such thing as selective obedience to orders. God's people obey God's program because it's God's program. And if God says, get on the ark in seven days, God's people are going to do it. If God says, minister to those in need, God's people will do it. If God says, move your family to Kazakhstan and enjoy me out loud there, God's people will do it. If God says the bride of Christ matters and you should not neglect the gathering of it, God's people won't neglect it. Whatever God says, God's people are characterized by doing it. So here's a typical question to kind of piece this thing together, to understand where the cart and the horse are in this. Are the people of God saved by their obedience? No. What are they saved by? Grace. Thank goodness. Oh, man. Cross point is... What sweet, sweet progress not to, um, not to hear otherwise. The people of God are saved by grace. But as wool is to the sheep, obedience is to the people of God. And I want to emphasize, thankfully, as a gracious God as we have, is that it's a character of obedience. It's not, okay, I'm in today, I'm out. Ooh, I messed up, oh, I'm out. The people of God are characterized by saying, Lord, how can I obey 
What have you commanded? What are you expecting of me? Let me in because of what you've done for me, not to earn what you've done for me, just in response because I bear your name. Let me pursue obedience. Okay, there's 40 days of rain. 40 seems to be an important number. What's a recent book that we've heard that has something to do with 40? Yeah, I make light of that book. Yeah, and I, I've read the book. I've actually, a few years ago, before I came to Crosspoint, our church was teaching through it, and I was one of the Sunday school leaders. And trying not to be a selective obedience to orders kind of guy, I said, okay, all right, so we'll teach through it. So we taught through it, and um, there, there were some neat things about it. Um, it's not my favorite approach to church ministry, but I know that God has used it. So I'm not discounting it, but I'm also not saying that's the thing. I just want to emphasize that uh, what Warren got around with this issue of 40, 40, it does seem to be important. This picture of 40 days is something that comes up for 40 years. Moses was on Sinai for 40 days. The Israel, uh, or the spies that went into the promised land, spent 40 days there. And based on their unbelief, based on their fear and their disbelief about going into the land, they spent how long in the desert? 40 years. And then after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to at least 500 people. We know in one account, in one instance, after he was resurrected, he appeared to 500 people in one specific instance. But he walked the earth for 40 days. So there's something interesting about 40 days. I don't have any special meaning for you that there's, you should go on a 40-day fast or anything like that. If you want to do that, that's, that's cool, but I just thought I'd bring that out. There just, just seemed to be something important about 40. Now, in the last three or four studies, I've kind of introduced this comparison between these uh, Mesopotamian accounts, and there were three of them. There was the, uh, the Gilgamesh epic was probably the most profound one with Utnapishtim, He's kind of that story's version of Noah. And we brought out two or three weeks ago that it's actually kind of cool when you see these other cultures and even other continents that have a worldwide flood story because it doesn't discount this story. It actually bolsters this story because it points out that it really happened. Charles Darwin could not explain why there's a worldwide flood story in all these continents and all these people groups all over the world. Give me an explanation for that, Charlie. I don't think he can have one. The only explanation is because it really happened. But, and I told you as we, we went, as we recognized certain things as passages as, as we engaged this story, that I would kind of pick up different things in comparisons so that you would see this story. It would be faith-building for you to see that this story is far more, more robust than any of these other little fairy tales. The Gilgamesh epic involves the building of the ship in seven days as compared to 100 years. And if you remember last week, it was also shaped like a big cube. And it had about eight times the, the, the weight on that ship than Noah had on his ship. And it was built like a big cube in seven days compared to 100 years. And their worldwide flood only lasted seven days as opposed to this flood lasting 40 days and nights. Okay, let's go to verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. This is a toad drowner to end all toad drowners. Man, what, what, what did we call it? This um, deluge, deluge, or I don't know how you'd say it. I don't say that very often, but I say toad drowner. 
And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. I want you to, like, have you ever heard like a big vault close? I'm trying to think of a door that's really loud that I've heard close before. You know, these big, some of these big hotel doors, big, huge doors. Just imagine the sound of the Lord shutting them in. The thing that I want you to appreciate just in that little passage I read right there is that God is so in control of this entire event. He's got his hand all over this event. He's preserving his people in his flood, in his designed ark, and he's even shutting the door behind him. It's such a sweet picture of providence. And the thing that I want to encourage you... I don't know that any of y'all are in serious, significant trials right now, but one of the things that I enjoy is when I see little snapshots that will encourage you if you're in a trial or when you go into a trial. And this ought to be a snapshot that encourages you. It doesn't mean you won't go through the flood, but it means that God will be involved in it. He may shut the door behind you to preserve you in the flood that you're in. And seeing his big mighty hand, now he doesn't have a hand like we do, but I like to envision this big involvement and this big engagement of shutting this door behind. It's a sweet picture of providence that as you step into trial and as you step into difficulty, you need to see his mighty and sovereign hand shutting the door behind you. There's something sweet about that. Seeing him on his throne and seeing his personal touch and protecting you, and securing you, and saving you through that. Here's one of my favorite passages. Um, You don't need to turn there. You may just jot it down. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16, it says, Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Sometimes when I want to remember somebody's name, or I'm praying for somebody, I'll write their name on the palm of my hand. Mindy's name is written on my palm right there, so I can remember her name. And just this vision of a mighty God that has inscribed you on the palm of His hands and your walls, in the time that this was written, your walls meant everything. The security of your city had everything to do with whether you had a robust wall. And God's saying that your security is ever before me. It's important to me. I've written you on the palm of my hands. I've shut the door behind you. You may not need that right now. But that Isaiah 49, 16, and this picture of Noah shutting, or God shutting the door behind Noah might mean something to you at a time, that God may be equipping you for something that you may face even this next week. Verse 17. Listen to this drama that's unfolding here in these next couple of minutes. Yeah. I didn't really, I didn't really hunker down on that. 
you know, I'm sure that you could. Yeah. Yeah. More, it seems to be more an emphasis than just saying the word. Mm hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I can look at that for next time we, we get together, though. That's a good question. Good question. And good job paying attention to repeated words, repeated phrases. There's so many of them in here that if you notice, they're a lot like the creation account, too, because things are being, in some ways, recreated. He's going to uncreate through the flood, and then as he repopulates, he's recreating with a whole new creation. So you'll see some real familiar language in there. Look at verse 17. Good, good question. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters, just pay attention to some of these words, increased. Okay, that's no big deal. The waters increased, and they bore up this huge, monstrous, football-and-a-half-field-long ark. Okay. And it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains covering them 15 cubits deep and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils were the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the face of the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. What these words and ink and paper and leather don't account for is the drama behind these words. This story has been, like I he was even praying in the beginning, that we've been so, it's been so kidized and been so um, sanitized through hearing it as children that we may have missed out on the real drama. This is a significant event. And these words that are brought out here, listen to these words, the waters increased they bore up, they prevailed, they increased greatly, and the ark floated and rose up. I mean, I'm imagining what it would be like to be on that ark that you've been building for a hundred years. None of us has ever done anything for a hundred years. Imagine spending a hundred years building this thing with the jeers and the heckles of all your friends and neighbors. And that, that moment where that thing actually bore up and lifted up off the soil. I mean, I can imagine being Shem. I was just thinking that Shem was just kind of, he's one of the three stooges, so I thought about him. Imagine being Shem, what it would be like for Shem as he's sitting there thinking, man, I hope I did a good job with those nails and that hammer. This thing's bearing up. I hope I did a good job fitting those things together, questioning every hammer blow and every nail. I can imagine Noah wondering, man, I hope I got those measurements right. I hope I did that exactly like God said do it. As you're hearing those big, Huge drops hitting the outside of that thing as you're hearing people scream, possibly, beating on the side of that boat, let us in. As you're hearing maybe the critters freaking out as they're hearing this rain, maybe the first time they've ever heard it. Do any of you have a dog that freaks out when it rains? Imagine a boatload of those animals going, what is this? 
I mean, can you imagine the drama of that moment? This story's been so kidized, I don't know that we can really appreciate it. We could bathe in this story, no pun intended. I mean, just get neck deep in it and just, just take in the drama of it and think about what it must have been like. The waters prevailed mightily so that even the highest mountains were covered by, listen, the amount of water necessary to allow for the draft of the ark. Man, you talk about a provident God. Just amount, he tells us specifically how much water it was above the highest mountain. That's how much this ark, the draft, meaning how much of the, the ark would have been underwater. God's providence, yet again. Just enough water. And then we turn off the faucet. We close the faucet. I got to make sure there's just enough to protect my people that I'm preserving on that ark. Man, what an incredibly provident God. Okay, let me ask you this question. How much flesh died? Uh, All. There's lots of words in here that point toward all. Let's look at them. Let's really just appreciate what they are. And all flesh died, all swarming creatures, all mankind, everything on the dry land, every living thing that was on the face of the ground that had the breath of life died. Mm. This thing, man, this is not the... This thing has to be sanitized for children. Now, we've got a child in here. It's not going to get real graphic. He's a little bit older. But just think about the dead bodies. Just think about the dead critters. I mean, you're talking about floating carcasses everywhere. I mean, the graphic experience. This is no less graphic. There's neighbors, acquaintances, and that dog that barked in the backyard, you know, at the neighbor's house. He's floating too. You might be kind of glad that he's floating, but you're seeing all kind of, all creation, every animal, everything floating out there on the outside of this ark. And this is graphic, yes, but it's no less graphic than Passover night when God came and delivered his people, another remnant, out of the hand of Egypt. And every household in Egypt was shrieking as they found the firstborn in their household dead. It's no less graphic than Passover night. It's no less graphic than the cross. That God also gathered people together from the four winds and is gathering currently through that one singular work. Also very graphic. And it's no less graphic than when Christ returns at the seventh trump and the dead in Christ rise. And judgment is meted out for all those who have turned their back on Him or never even accepted Him. I think we need to share a gentler view with our kids, but we, do, we should not let the gentleness of that version render this one tame. Because <laughs> this thing is not tame. This was raw, and it was graphic, and it was a picture of terrible judgment by a mighty God. I'm concerned that I don't know how to tremble at God because I don't know that I've ever engaged these stories rightly. As I go back and I engage them rightly, and I try and climb in, and I try and be shim, Then there's some trembling that starts to happen. And then I recognize that the wrath that's due me, and then I appreciate, only then do I think we appreciate propitiation that Christ steps in our stead and bears the wrath that's due us. We can't appreciate propitiation except that we get acquainted with the wrath of God. Here's where we get acquainted with the wrath of God. Where we see every creature floating. Where we we engage this graphic story. Everything that had the breath of life died. And this is where everything is uncreated. 
Every living thing is blotted out, and only God's remnant is left. His covenant partner, Noah, and his family. In Genesis chapter 8, there's where the whole story just reaches this wonderful turning point. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God is a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. This word remember isn't like recollecting. It wasn't like God was off doing something. He said, oh yeah, there's no way he's floating over there on the ark. Let me go help him out. Or it's not like a remember, like, I just remembered. I need to go get ketchup at the grocery store. That's not the remembering this is. This is remembering with appreciation, meaning that there's something that happens. It's, it's not just recollection. It is, I'm going to engage you. And in fact, I'm going to make good on a promise that I made to you. So what that means here is that God followed through on his promise that he made to Noah. It means that he's going to act on a previous commitment to a covenant partner. He made a commitment to Noah, and now he's making good on that commitment. I have to confess to you, it probably is a product of the treatment of the Old Testament Testament for most of my life that's kind of been more story, more topically treated, where I haven't gotten to know Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, I've never gotten to know the beauty of the covenant-making nature of our God and the covenant-keeping nature of our God. Man, we have got to learn to appreciate and enjoy and engage the covenant-making character and covenant-keeping character of our God. And when we appreciate what's at stake, the way we appreciate what's at stake is when we climb into this ark and we hear those big fat drops hit that ark. And we hear those screams from everyone else. The way we appreciate what's at stake is where we sit in the home of an Israelite with the door slathered up with the blood of the Passover lamb while mama's fixing the herb-roasted lamb while we're hearing the shrieks of of Egypt. That's where we begin to appreciate what's at stake. Studying through Revelation, that's where you begin to appreciate what's at stake where you realize that Exodus is coming again, where God's going to come get his people again. When you begin to appreciate what's at stake, then you have a greater appreciation for his promises and the fact that he makes good on his promises. Man, the people of God have got to enjoy that. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and rain from heavens was restrained And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Okay, just a couple quick questions. Who made the wind blow? God did, okay. Who closed the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens? God did. Who restrained the rain from the heavens? God did. And God is on His throne. Throughout this entire thing, He is on His throne. We should have a view of God being in control and on His throne. That will, I promise you, comfort you when you find yourself swimming. And when you find those big drops hitting you and you find yourself in your flood. 
And this ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, which is really kind of current uh, eastern Turkey, southern Russia, and northwestern Iran. I don't know that you can spend a lot of time trying to nail down exactly where that was. Even the narrator of this story doesn't even know exactly where it is. They just kind of, in general, it's the mountains of Ararat. It's not the point, I don't think. Verse 6, at the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. All right, now the, this story, I want you to appreciate. I'm not going to take you there yet. Uh, I just I want to introduce you to something in a moment, but it's not quite time. Noah is sending forth life, and this is the first signs of life after the flood. I want you to appreciate on the entire earth that this little ark is the locus of all living things. And he's sending this raven out is the first sending forth of life from this little living incubator. And uh, this, this um, raven takes flight. And then next in verse 8, he sends forth a dove. Why do you think he would release a raven before releasing a dove? You have to think about this a little bit. Huh? Now, it has to do with the difference between the two birds, though. Think about it. Huh? He's probably not clean. That's true. I don't think the raven was clean and the dove was clean. So that, that's a good point. But I, I'm thinking even just, you have to know something about kind of the character of dove. Yeah, there's no high wires to sit on. There's a lot of floating meals for raven. Yeah, this, this might be something we could talk about for a while and never really get there. So I'll just go ahead and take you where I was thinking. <laughs> Ravens are more robust than a dove. I mean, they are. I mean, you think about it, you don't have to care for a raven. They, they're pretty good scavengers. They can care for themselves. Now, a dove is different. A dove needs feed. A dove needs care. And him sending out a raven first is kind of a first indication of Noah as a gentle steward caring for these creatures. He's been given charge, stewardship over these animals to tend to them. And he's sending out the hardier one first. Now, I don't know why he just didn't keep sending out a raven, but he does send out a dove next. Now look at this wonderful picture, developing picture of this caring steward next in verse 9. The dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him, to him, to the ark. Recognize where she returned. And she, it's just so sweet. She's got gender. The raven, raven doesn't have gender. But she, and you just picture this gentle female dove. She returned to him, to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. This weary she-dove returns to him to the ark. I was just thinking about this cool connection between man and creature here. And in some way, it seems a lot like Isaiah, uh, this prophetic picture in Isaiah about the end times or the new heavens and the new earth. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read just a passage from you. It's one you've likely heard before. Isaiah 65, verse 25, it says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. Kind of this picture, this real picture of harmony, almost an Eden-like environment where there's no fighting and there's no fear of each other. And Noah relating to this dove seems like such a sweet, picture together, and it may seem like, oh, that's just kind of a quaint sentiment, but this seems to be important to God. 
And the reason this picture seems to be important to God, I want you to appreciate this story has moved at breakneck speed up to now. It's gotten slower as we've gotten up to this point. You know that Noah lived 500 years before he's ever even really introduced into the story. He's 500 years old when he's got Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Oh, yeah, by the way. And then things start to get slower and slower. There's 150 days. There's 40 days. Things are getting slower and slower and slower until there's this moment in the story where Noah thrusts his wrinkled old hand from the ark and receives that dove back. Now, while it might seem like just a quaint sentiment to us, it seems to matter to God the connection between mankind and the critters and the rest of creation. People ask me often, not so much anymore, I don't know that Crosspoint folks are really that, that concerned about it, but it, it's something I think about sometimes is, you know, will there be animals in the new heavens and new earth? I think if they're good enough for the first creation, I can't imagine they wouldn't be for the second. And there seems to be this sweet communion, sweet fellowship between man and creature, and this picture of dominion and stewardship. I can't make that promise that your favorite pet will show up in the new heavens and new earth, but man, there just is a connection that we must not discount as, um, as, as, as unimportant. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10. This is just, actually, I already have it in front of me. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10 says, The righteous have regard for the life of their beast. There is a connection between the creatures and man and our Creator. And this whole creation is being redeemed while we're being redeemed. This whole creation is groaning, anxiously awaiting Christ's return. I don't want to make too much of that where we start having blessed the dog day or anything like that. But... Man, I think there's a beautiful picture here between Noah and this dove and this wrinkled old hand receiving this dove. Verse 10, Noah waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundredth and first year of the first month of the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Okay, these guys have been on this ark for nearly a year. When he said, get on the ark on that seventh day, it's going to start raining in seven days, and those big drops hit their heads as they're climbing the gangplank. This was February 17th of Noah 600. You remember we had this kind of weird year that we were making up because it's not A.D. or B.C. It's the 600 year of Noah life. So it's February 17th is the day that it started raining. Poof, poof. Now this day is January 1st, 601 Noah. And they peek out and they see clearly that it is dry. So what do they do? They pile out of that thing like a bunch of wild Indians, don't they? No, they don't. Man, I, I can just imagine if I've been on that thing for nearly a year with all those critters, with my brothers and their wives, I couldn't wait to get off that thing now. Now, my brother and his wives may not listen to this thing. I'm being facetious. but You can imagine that they would be ready to get off that ark. But then in verse 14, it says, In the second month, 
on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. (laughs) It was already dry on January 1st. And they just sat there. And the beauty is that they sat there for almost two months. Why would they do that? Think about that. Why would Noah do that? What are your thoughts? Scared? Was he scared he can't? That's it. He's been conditioned to wait for God for instruction. God has given him step-by-step instructions for how to live and how to proceed and how to be delivered through this thing. Here's how many feet, how many cubits, I guess, would be the ark. How's how tall? Here's how you build that thing. It's going to start raining on seven day. So Noah's been conditioned to listen to God. He's not living by sight. He's living by faith. <laughs> That's a cool picture right there. He's waiting for God's instruction. And look what happens next there in verse 15. Then God said, almost two months later, after it was already dry, then God said to Noah, There may have been some cool protective provision in it. There may have been like sinkholes or quagmires out there or um, swamps or something that were dangerous that it just was, it may have looked like it was safe, but there may have been a picture provision there that God was protecting them. It's not quite time. It may look like it is, but you wait till I tell you it's time. And then you unload. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that's with you and with all... And with you all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by what? By families from the ark. Even the critters unloaded by families. Tell me families don't, don't matter to God. And I'm just going to say I disagree. It's just all over the Word. And I think it's important to realize that if you shepherd a family, you've got to appreciate the awesome responsibility that we've got to prepare our family. This is just a little inside information for you. I was having a conversation with somebody about this yesterday of what God seems to be developing in us the last year and a half or so. Really, I think it's since our Passover series. We were looking at that father preparing, making ready the family for midnight deliverance, I shared with them that while my mouth had said this for, I guess, three years or so up to that point, that my family, ministry to my family came before my ministry to Crosspoint, my actions didn't say that. What I mean is when I studied and when I prepared to teach and preach, it was really for this and for what takes place on Sunday morning. And if I had anything left over, I was going to give some to my family. And what I've realized in these last few months especially is, hey, my family, my family gets dibs. Y'all are getting leftovers. I hate to break it to you. But the thing that I've found is that when my wife and my children get dibs on this sort of preparation, this sort of feasting, that he blesses this. I've got more resources in this than I've ever had. It's kind of, it's weird, it's weird, it's like tithing. When you tithe, you look back and you go, the rest of that went further. I don't know how he did that. God is so good. And God's saying, men, engage your families. That is your ministry. You are the shepherd of that family. Prepare that family for midnight. Unload that family from the ark by families. You're responsible for that family. They get dibs, not L3, 
<laughs> not insert whatever, wherever you work. They don't get dibs on you. Your wife and your children get dibs. When men start stepping up in that, man, you're talking about being ready for midnight. You're talking about families ready for the ark. The ark is ready to float. Verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What's the first thing Noah did when he got off the ark? I bet he stretched. I mean, don't you think? Been on that thing for a year, man, a year and a week. He stretches, ah, picks up some ground, grass, you know, rubs it between his hands. But the first real, first real thing that he did is he worshiped. He said, where's one of those clean animals that was just preserved as a remnant in that ark? Where's my little substitutionary atonement that I can present? And he worships. I think that's why little bitty exercises that might seem unimportant and insignificant, like our little family, Psalm 107s, I think that's why they're so important. Because our families have each been through little series of little floods and little series of little Egypts. And when God delivers you from those things, when your family stops down and says, let's remember that and let's record that, you're doing what Noah did right here when he stepped foot off the, off the ark and he worshiped. It's out loud. It's in response to that deliverance. And it is appropriate. Worship is so important. And it's so appropriate. And I want you to notice, too, how it's connected to how God responds. It says right here, there's an important word there. The word when in verse 21. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart. Worship is so important that it's when God smelled the aroma that he said from the same heart that was grieved over the wickedness of mankind, from that same very heart, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Tell me worship doesn't matter. Worship impacts the heart of the living God. What a wonderful thing that we get to participate in worship. One last question to consider before we close. Did the flood change man's heart? No. It's bad news, isn't it? We'd hoped that a long swim, of course nobody survived the swim, obviously, but maybe being witness to all that, that that would profoundly impact man's heart to where man would not be the same, but Man is the same. Man's just as wicked now as man was then. Did the flood change God? Mm, depends on how you define change. One of the principles that I will ask you to just embrace in regards to God is God is immutable. That means He's unchanging. He's unchanging, immutable. It's one of the characteristics of God. But in some way, it did impact the Lord. In some way, it did engage him somehow it satisfied and satisfied him and appeased him this flood this worldwide sacrifice is what it became it became this worldwide substitutionary atonement where all these animals and all humanity became a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of noah and his family and somehow it satisfied and appeased the living god 
So much so that he made a commitment that he would not destroy all that breathed again. So I don't know if it changed him, but it did impact him. It did impact him. And it connected with him. And it's like, uh, this is just a note that I made at the end of this that I really didn't even read very much, but we'll see what it says. It's like all humanity and all creatures were substitutionary atonement. I remember that. For Noah, his family, and the animals on the ark. They and the one sacrificed after the flood satisfied God's wrath directed at creation. So I don't know that it changed him. I don't think it did because I believe that God is immutable. But it did impact his heart and it appeased him and satisfied him. So much so that God will preserve the earth until the final judgment. And what do we have as a reminder of that that we see all the time? Rainbow. Man. We'll go that go there into chapter 9 and consider the rainbow and consider what happens to the brothers, the three stooges. And I don't mean to belittle these guys because, like I said, I believe there was some individual right, righteousness there on their part as well. Um, but we'll consider what happened to these guys and what happened to Noah after the flood. And uh, we'll see what happens to mankind again. And this will be the first Wednesday after the new year. What is New Year's on? Wednesday? Tuesday? I don't think we'll meet the Wednesday after that. The second. I, I don't know. I, I'll let you know. I, we'll, the elders will talk about that and figure out our schedule and decide on that. But for sure, um, we'll jump into chapter 9. And uh, some, of these t- some of these chapters will move quickly. Some of them slowly. Some of them we'll take our time with and gnaw on. But tonight we covered two chapters. Can you believe that? Went over by five minutes. It's pretty amazing. Well, the wind, you know, he initiated the wind, and I don't know what that wind was like, you know, and he could, those, you know, those fountains of the deep could have been in the withdrawal sponge mode, you know, suck it right back up. And yeah, it takes some time. Yeah. Right. It's hard to imagine that kind of water abating that quick. Right. It's hard to imagine that that water could cover the face of the earth that quick, too. It must have been a significant rain. It must have been a significant wind that, that took it back, too. Pretty remarkable times. I'd love to see a movie. What did you say? Huh? Yeah, God thing, yeah. I'd love to see somebody try and capture in movie what this must have been like. That would be a drama. That would be remarkable. Well, let me pray. And, uh, of course, this is better than the movie. Y'all know the word is always better than a movie. All right? You know that people say, man, the book, that movie didn't touch the book. Well, that's always true of this. I don't care what, how good the passion was. It doesn't touch that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this rich story. We even thank you for the graphic uh, considerations of what it must have been like. We want to tremble and at the same time approach the throne with confidence, knowing that that sacrifice and the work of The cross is complete and sufficient and that we can approach you and your throne boldly now because of the blood of Jesus. We count that the only reason, not by any righteousness of our own, but by the righteousness earned by Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much for that. Thank you for these wonderful pictures of 
the urgency of shepherding and making ready our families. Lord, I pray for shepherds, uh, men mostly, but those single moms or those functionally single moms, just pray for an urgency, one that is stronger than the pursuit of a better salary or a nicer home or a nicer car or providing for family financially, but just a real recognition that, that our families have dibs on us. And just a real commitment, Lord. I just beg for that in the men and the shepherds of this people and just pray that you'll be glorified in that and that you'll be honored in a people, a healthy, robust people that are captivated with Christ and are salty and bright and aromatic will be grown as a result of that. Lord, we thank you so much that you are redeeming your people by families and we just pray that we'll just put an urgency on that and a gravity, recognize the gravity of that and that we'll... Uh, engage that appropriately we love you so much lord we turn the rest of this week over to you and these holidays pray for safe travel and safe engagements with families but more than that we pray that your will will be done pray for an opportunity to enjoy christ out loud with family members that may not know you i pray that you will be savored and that you'll be treasured in dark places and in frustrating settings and in difficult uh, relationships that you'll be enjoyed so that Possibly lost sheep can hear your voice. Possibly people can smell the sweet aroma of Christ and just recognize that it smells good. Lord, we just pray that you'll give us opportunity for that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.